Oh, welcome back, my friends, to the political song that never ends, I guess. This is Rick Wagner here on KNZ KGLN, getting it right on another weekend here. I appreciate your listenership a lot. And we're, of course, here at 1190.7 and 980 and 101.3. We have, uh, of course, the Internet available for quite a few people that listen on the Internet, which is kind of cool. And uh, we also have uh, the shows as podcasts that you can get on, uh, you can get on, let's see, I think you can get them on Apple. I know you can get them on Podbeam, and you can just go to our webpage, which you should go to and check out periodically anyway, uh, which is uh, therickwagnershow.com, or if you're coming from Facebook or something, it's uh, the uh, politicalviking.com, which we have a good Facebook page up by that name, Political Viking on Facebook, and we've got a lot of people that uh, check in there too. So uh, check in and subscribe if you want to. I don't make any money off any of this stuff. <laughs> I'm not selling anything in the webpages or Facebook or anything. I just try to get some stuff out there, and uh, hey, if you don't agree with it, you, you please think about it. So, uh, and I'm all, by the way, very, very pleased with how much uh, good feedback I get from you folks. It's really been nice. But let me just uh, say this, and I think this is a very, very transient observation, and I, I don't want to get real esoteric and make it hard to follow, but I think things are kind of weird. Okay. I know, it's a technical term, but the more I uh, spend time looking into things, preparing for the show through the week, usually late in the evenings, which perhaps makes me more vulnerable to weirdness, I just can't believe the amount of things that we're arguing about, or the types of things. There's a lot of them, and, and the types of things we're arguing about. I always think of what uh, Douglas Murray says uh, periodically if you listen to him or read him and it and it's always so true is that we're having terrific arguments and uh, fighting about positions that two or three years ago no one thought was a problem and certainly five years ago no one thought would become a problem and all of a sudden we're embroiled in these huge debates about things uh, things that really were probably if you believe what people are talking about were going on then, but didn't seem to be that that of emergent kind of situation. Yet here we are, having knocked down dragouts about things. The the whole this whole trans debate. Every time I I read something about it, I thought, how did this become such a big issue? And what's really percentage of the population does it affect? Now that number is changing. If you look at what's happening in high schools, middle schools, and even below you're seeing that there is a higher percentage of people in those schools that are identifying themselves now as non-binary or uh, possibly trans. or And half the time when you look at it, I don't think they even know what they're talking about. But because it is sort of a trendy, trending thing, and school administrators and politicians of a certain stripe reward you for that kind of thing uh, – I think it encourages students to say things they're not even sure about. This is the whole purpose of counseling, to make sure if someone is holding a position when they're young, especially, very young in these instances, if that position is their own or if it's society's pressure in some strange way that makes them feel like they should hold that position. Now, by the way, that's not always bad. There are some things about society that you want to have people believe in and adhere to so that you have a successful society. Obey the law. Don't harm other people. Keep your hands off other folks' stuff. 
try and not steal people's cars and hijack them and drive down the road into a body of water. You know, regular stuff. And so when when you're trying to do that, it certainly is a situation that you want people to buy into. But most of the time, when people are developing as, oh gosh, middle school or people uh, in high school even, or before that, if we can remember back to how some of the attitudes we had at those times, remember that they were changing all the time. And things that were so important to us at that time seem almost meaningless now as you look back at it, like having a particular kind of uh, backpack or, you know, uh, having some certain kind of hiking boots or whatever the case may be that was trendy at the time that you would hound your parents about and they'd think that you had a hole in your head that that was so important. And yet to you, because of social pressures and things like that, were extremely important. So you have to sort through this stuff to see why these attitudes and desires and things are, are being driven in these directions. And we just don't want to anymore in some of these things because there's a political quotient to it that identifies a momentary thought on some of these topics as a hard and fast rule. And it's very dangerous to do that with children in school. Uh, they change fast. We changed fast. Sometimes it's hard to remember uh, how many different phases we went through as children. But when you have children and see it, especially if you have them a few years apart, so often you see this over and over again. And the schools are are terrible places now in many cases. And huge amounts of money are being dumped into them, and we're getting really, really poor results. I mean, I was looking at, uh, oh gosh, where did I put this? Uh, Chicago Public Schools. You can guess that they're probably these humdingers, right? Story ahead here on the website from a few days ago. 55 Chicago Public Schools have zero students proficient in math and reading. I don't think that lays out a future of great prosperity for those students. And I don't see it laying out a future of productivity for society. So no one's happy. They're not going to be happy. Society won't be happy. Civilization isn't happy when that kinds of things happen. So we have to see what's going on. By the way, there was a study in New York City, and I also put this on the website. The charter schools in New York City outperform the public schools and things like math, reading, you know, stuff that nobody cares about. And uh, they do it for less than half the cost per student that the public schools do. And I'll bet it's even less than half for what they're spending in Chicago to turn out people who have zero proficiency in math and reading. So that's always encouraging. And I had a story here, too, that uh, since it's in Colorado where I'm at, I noticed right away, says, Colorado School District revises transgender student policies after criticism. Oh, what a surprise. What controversy could arise over that, one wonders. And uh, Colorado School District has agreed to stop concealing the transgender identity of students from parents unless it de- deems the child to be facing a safety threat, according to documents obtained by the Daily Signal, which is where this story came from. And this is the Canyon City, the Canyon City School District. And uh, they had hosted a transgender student policy work group uh, way back in November. And... Uh, decided that they needed to change this policy so they'd only withhold information about a child who felt themselves to be transgendered or something in this this situation if they thought there was a safety threat. 
because they've been withholding it apparently, and you need to store yourself because it'll well it'll it'll shake you up a little bit. Except for one thing, if you read this policy, this statement, they don't say what a safety threat means. Right? They're saying, well, we're only going to withhold this information from parents who think there's a safety threat. Well, what does that mean? Now, I know this is probably the lawyer in me, but when you have terms, they need to be defined. Because if you throw a term in there that is like a sharp corner, like, well, we're going to do this unless this. Well, the unless this needs to be defined very well. But to say safety concerns, well, what is that supposed to mean? Physical safety, mental duress, disagreement, parents who disagree with the child's decision, parents who are concerned. What, what, is, what does the safety threat mean? You see what that does is that it allows them to have this weird out so that if they continue to have this program and parents find out again about it, they can say, well, we deemed it a safety threat. Well, really, how come? Well, because the child is afraid to tell his parents or her parents or their parents, I guess. And so we felt that was a safety threat. So really, if you if you want to imbue that term with whatever sort of qualifying statements about it that you want, then the change in policy doesn't mean all that much. It just sounds like it means something. And the fact that they would sort of edge around this to somehow give themselves an out, to me, is disturbing all by itself. So, take a oh, thanks for sticking around, everybody. Appreciate that. Hey, I want to bring up that uh, in the third segment here, uh, the one following this one, we're going to be talking to, at least if everything goes right, we're going to be talking to uh, Kelly Caulfield, who is the author of this report that came out about my area in Grand Junction here in Colorado, but I think it's of interest to everybody out there about uh, the homeless situation. And uh, it, the study, I, I enjoyed the study. I thought it was interesting reading. Uh, you know, we here where I'm at is have an enormous spike in the homeless population as a percentage of just our population, more so than some of the even bigger cities on the front range. We'd like to know what those reasons are. The study doesn't really go into the reasons why homelessness increases, but we should sure start trying to figure that out. And I think sometimes we don't figure it out because people don't want to know the answers because they already know the answer to some extent. It's lax law enforcement. It's decriminalizing drugs. And it is... uh passing legislation that allows people to camp wherever they want to on sidewalks, in front of stores. It's doing away with enforcement of common sort of civility types of things like, uh, well, public intoxication or sometimes urinating in public or all these kinds of things are just going by the wayside. We're going backward, of course, in society yet again. As I've said before, I mean, not only are we contracting the freedom in your life, but we're going backward into terms of what's acceptable behavior. And I'm not talking about thinking. See, if you talk about behavior with the, the far left, what they're really going to talk to you about is how you're not thinking correctly and saying the right things. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about behaviors. Uh, you can be as goofy as you want to inside your own head, but uh, try not to urinate in public, okay? I mean, the one is a behavior, another is an attitude. And uh, if your attitude makes you happy and you're not bothering me, just be as crazy as you want. Just uh, don't bother me with it. 
and don't exhibit your problems. And we've now got all that messed up and it's destroying the ability of just regular people. That would be you folks out there to enjoy freedom, the freedom that we have to roam around and do things. You're slowly, once again, I know I've been on this before from last week too, this contraction of your freedoms and your liberty, your personal freedom and liberty, where you can go, what you can say. Should you be out after dark in some of these places? If something bad happens to you, will anybody care? Is there some criteria outside of your control that will decide if they care about what happens to you or not? Are you some sort of uh, favorite group or unfavored group? Will that affect what happens to you? Will it affect the reaction to what happens to you? All of these things are terrible uh, examples of things to be thinking about, right? I mean, this is not something that a society that uh, we've wrought upon American soil here is supposed to be doing, and yet it keeps coming all the time. Uh, all sorts of outcomes are getting based more and more on sort of what you are, even beyond who you are. You know, you can change socioeconomic situations. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes the situation out there, uh, the stratification of society makes it very difficult, but theoretically you can change that. When you start getting into these other things about, you know, what uh, what race you may be, what ethnicity, uh, what's your position on a, a couple of very important religious issues, things like that, and decide to define your whole acceptance and the treatment society is supposed to give you based on those things, what kind of society is that? I mean, it, it sounds like some sort of bizarre caste system that like you might see in some place like India or some of those other societies like that. And that's what we're developing. We're developing sort of a ad hoc caste system in this country. And so when you look at things like the homeless population and so forth, Allowing that to run wild, or not just the population increase of it, but the factors that have increased that population, and then the behaviors associated with it, and then the acceptance of those behaviors, encouragement to some extent of those behaviors, uh, what does that do to you who is not a member of that situation, right? I mean, you're not really interested in camping on a, uh, you know, a city or a state supplied tent on the sidewalks and trying to figure out how to get drugs. Probably not your goal in life. Some people, apparently it is. It's very sad. There's a lot of people out there on the streets that have serious mental health issues, that have substance abuse issues that sometimes are related to their mental health issues, and there is a unfortunately significant minority of them that are just plain criminals that hide out in that population so they can do what they want. And you mix all that together. It's not a rep. It's not a prescription for personal freedom for you. It seems to be increasing the personal freedom for that group, but the only way that they can increase their personal freedom because of their behaviors is to essentially intrude on your life. Pretty soon you just could go into the park. You're going to take your kid to the park with people camping out in it and shooting drugs and screaming at non-existent people. I mean, the president can do that, I mean, in terms of screaming and trying to shake hands with people that aren't there. But most of the time, it makes you nervous if you're somewhere with your kids playing and uh, there are people out there that are talking to uh, ghosts, right? So uh, that t- 
tends to keep you away from those areas, and it begins to be limiting, right? I mean, areas and situations become things that you avoid more and more. I mean, is it really something that we ought to accept that you would be, in most cases, reluctant to visit a large percentage of our nation's capital because of crime and just rampant problems there? Or that even in the state I'm at in Colorado here, there's plenty of places now in the capital of Colorado, in Denver, that's just not a good idea to be hanging out. You're paying for all of it, usually. This idea of public property seems to be that it belongs to everybody, except for the people that actually are paying for it. It's it's a, such a strange situation. And you're always caught up in this idea that you have to be compassionate, which is true. Uh, compassion should be fundamentally related to the largest society can have. I mean, if your society is doing well, we should work to make sure that we can help help people move up. But it doesn't mean that we have to supply them with the tools uh, to stay down in the process, make it more difficult for us to live our own lives. And that's what's going on. And it's it's very strange when you stop and think about it what's happening and it's grown over time and it isn't until you take that step back that you see what's really going on once again your life has been diminished at the expense of someone else's freedom to behave in essentially a unsocial manner that's not how a civilization grows it's how a civilization devolves into some sort of feral society if you're not careful and, you know, what drives it anymore, it's even beyond what it used to be, I think, where they're trying to appease a voting block, right? The far left especially loves a permanent underclass that they can pretend to assist and convince that underclass that the only way for them to exist or make any kind of movement is through the far left's largesse. That's been going on for a while. It's it's an old story. I mean, it's not like it happened. It's not even a story that starts in America. It's much, much older than that. But it has various incarnations. Now, we have that, obviously. But we also have a group of, of, group of people, many of whom are our own government we've talked about, who I believe think that this whole system needs to be taken down, that the whole, uh, you know, the table of... Uh, poker table needs to be turned over and the lamp blown out like they used to talk about in old westerns uh, so they can grab the money and run out of the room or just turn the table over and try and play a new game that they've thought up you put those two together and it's it's a dangerous and unfortunate situation luckily where i should say fortunately in this situation i think people are realizing what's going on it's not as complicated as it seems but it is insidious it's and it's consistent The left never rests, and a couple of things they do, obviously we've talked about here, is they just don't tell you what they're doing until it's done. Secondly, is that they try and figure out ways to influence societal behavior and the expenditure of money in ways that aren't super obvious. Like, although they're becoming more obvious in a couple areas, but in general they try and tweak 
uh, certain things in terms of governmental power and authority and jurisdiction in ways that don't sound all that outrageous unless you know how it all works and realize, wait a second, if you do that, then, you know, if I give the EPA over everything that's non-navigable, every body of water in the country, that means, you know, if you have a, you know, a ornamental pond on your front yard, the EPA can probably come in and tell you what to do with it. So you have to be alert to what do they really mean when they make these changes? These changes are never made to give you more freedom when you have a far left government in charge. And so every time you hear about a rule change, you think, well, what does that really mean? Right? I think what does that really mean should be something that we could think about every time we hear something about government. Hey, everybody. Thanks a lot for sticking with us uh, here this weekend. We appreciate it. I, uh, for those of you on the podcast, and you're probably not hearing our bumper music, but since we're talking today with Kelly Caulfield from the uh, Common Sense Institute, who did a little study on homelessness in our area, I thought Roger Miller's King of the Road, who's what I paid for a bumper, was just the right thing to have. Uh, sort of brings back those happy, smiling days when, you know, hobos maybe, uh, you know, rolling alongside of the road with a little stick and a and a handkerchief with their belongings in them. That was what we had to worry about and not the uh, horrific images we see of homeless populations now. So, uh, Kelly Caulfield, welcome to the show. We appreciate you spending a little time with us. And I don't care where anybody's listening here. Uh, there's a problem and you just finished a study on the town that i'm in in grand junction colorado which is a which is kind of a, a small city but we have an increasing uh problem with uh transients and they're all over the place and they don't leave now in the winter time and uh i think that your study showed we had what had a 64 percent increase in the last three or four years is that correct that's right thank you so much for the opportunity um, to be with you today. You're right. Um, the figure has grown um, for the unsheltered population, 60%. That's right. And, you know, that's just that's just the beginning of it. Common Sense Institute, for those who might not be familiar with us, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization focused on protecting Colorado's economy. And who doesn't want that? We're based in Greenwood Village, and since we've been around for a number of years, a lot of our reports and um, data and findings that we've produced have taken that statewide lens. What's the statewide um, situation in terms of health care, education, crime, housing? Well, this year, yeah, we're, we need, and we need that. We need to have some solid data for people to be able to work from. And, uh, you know, for instance, in, in my case here is uh, – I'm fairly partisan, and uh, I work very hard not to be a not-for-profit. So uh, there's a there's a difference there. But, uh, yeah, the Common Sense Institute has – and what I liked about your little study that you put out uh, was that it is uh, brief enough to where you can get a sense of it pretty quickly, but complete enough to see kind of your, your study patterns without – you know, in, including so much in there that it's hard to wade through the data points. I would just ask you, if you're a person sitting out there in any one of the numerous communities that listen to the radio station now, what do you do? Stop the influx of homeless into your community and try and address the people in your community that legitimately need it, need assistance. That's real well, simple. I, I, I mean, that's just a one-sentence answer, I'm sure. We just have to acknowledge there's a problem and that Grand Junction has experienced a significant rise. And our study is pointing out that 
Grand Junction is really standing out among Colorado's largest cities. As a share of city's total population, the homeless population in Grand Junction is 14 percent. Again, we're talking about percentages higher than Denver, 75 percent higher than Boulder, and 165 percent higher than Colorado Springs. So I think our goal in issuing this report, and we, to be clear, we're not just trying to pick on one town, but the goal here is to publish the latest data at the local level for those cities that are about to have municipal elections. 2023 is a huge municipal election year. Colorado Springs, Grand Junction, and Denver are all up in April. And later this year, Fort Collins, Pueblo, and Aurora, Aurora will have their elections. So we'll be doing the same for them, issuing reports on housing, homelessness, and crime. The three top issues in any poll that I've seen, these are the issues that are on voters' minds. So just wanted to frame out why the why, why CSI did this study. And after you've identified the problem, you're asking the hard question. You know, how do we get to solutions? That's what we all want. That is, I think, the most critical part of the conversation after we look at after we look at the data. And I think when we let, let's start with just looking at those those numbers. Um, I think we found that you have to first push your local leaders to have a, a system to be able to track where is the money going on homelessness. The state received significant fund funding from the federal stimulus dollars. The state legislature has directed over $240 million in new state homelessness spending initiatives. So I do think the first question to ask is, where is that money going? Hard questions about resource allocation. And is there some transparency for voters to understand where the dollars are going and what strategies seem to be working? Well, you know, I like sort of a cockeyed optimist anytime, you know, so I appreciate your viewpoint. Uh, but, uh, of course that, that's next to impossible to get out of government in general and local government especially. Uh, over here, we're lucky if we know, uh, where anything goes at any point in time. And that's why the municipal election is so important. We've, uh, you know, we have a, a terrible run government here. Terribly run government. Yeah. You know, and, and if you're looking for a study to do, uh, you might look into, uh, just sort of the psychological study that when you introduce a room full of room temperature IQs, uh, looking at, uh, various problems that just because there's more of them doesn't mean there's not an additive process. In other words, 272, uh, IQs don't add up to 144. It's, I think actually it's a, it's a, you subtract from that because we have some of, I don't know what they're doing. We've increased our law enforcement budget here significantly with a specific tax, uh, in the city. Uh, for law enforcement, I don't see those resources being allocated towards this problem at all. And I think I understand why uh, they're afraid, mainly, a certain amount of fear in terms of it comes to the regulatory side of this. And, you know, there, there has to be more than just simply giving things away, building shelters, doing this and that. You've, you've got to be able to uh, regulate the criminal aspects of this and uh, make sure that the citizens are, you know, not in, overly inconvenienced by it in a in a way that's uh, outside the boundaries of the law, and we don't seem to be doing that. And Denver is a disaster. Uh, the city and county of Denver is sailing their ship straight towards uh, you know the Detroit model, apparently, and uh, you know sort of a combination of destroying business like Detroit and uh, turning their streets into Los Angeles. So there, it's got to be more than just throwing resources at it. 
you got to throw resources at particular areas and agencies that have an impact on the symptomology of the problem, don't you? Well, I, I agree with everything you said, and I think in terms of looking for some solutions and trying to find some hope and some pretty negative findings, I hate to compare cities too much, but Colorado Springs, honestly, is something that we're watching. We did the data for very similar, um, you know, analysis for the spring. Denver's homelessness report will be out next week. I'm not feeling very good about that, but in the spring, we're able to see a 43% decline in the unsheltered population since 2018. There's something to learn from here. Again, I think, you know, I would ask your your viewers and those listening to us today to try to better understand that. We have some data that Colorado Springs, you know, city invested in a very strong shelter system, support for the homeless. It's the rescue mission um, nonprofit down there. And we, we think it's, we, we think they're doing big things and there's something, there's something to learn from them. Well, there certainly is, but let me ask you a question. Is, uh, let's say you're a, a runner. I don't know if you are or not, but, uh, do you, would you feel good about, uh, going out for a jog in the broad daylight even along the, uh, South Platte right now? I am a runner and, uh, definitely not. No, of course not. And that's <laughs> yeah. wrong. All right. Be smart with where I run and what time. Of course. And that's not something that a citizen in the United States should have to worry about all the time. There's a deficit right there in terms of protection for just simple law-abiding ordinary citizens. And the fact that, you know, that manifests itself in contracting your life, right? It shrinks down what you're doing, your choices, what you do, the thoughts you have to go through, and the exposure to danger. Uh, that's just wrong. And until people feel safe, there's not a way to address anything. And, you know, the, if I've talked to many people, I mean, I have a fairly extensive career in law enforcement and, you know, I've known a lot of people who are, you know, unhoused, I guess, huh? And a significant percentage of them have drug and alcohol problems. Some of them have, uh, many of them have mental health problems and some of them, there's a crossover there. And there's a certain percentage of just criminals that are hiding out in that community. So, Having a, having a way to address their personal needs and problems and sorting those groups out it seems to me to be the biggest challenge, isn't it? I, I agree. This is a multifaceted, extremely complicated societal problem, and there is no one silver bullet or one solution. I think what I would point to in our report is an accountability mechanism, a tool that voters in Grand Junction can use for those running to be your next slate of leaders, ask them the question, $9 million of federal relief money was geared towards homelessness in Grand Junction. Right. What are we getting for? What's the ROI? And which strategies are proving to be most successful so that they can be scaled? I think this is an accountability conversation. It's asking hard questions and not allowing um, our leaders to skirt by with just political one-line answers. Well, I, I think that, you know, there it is a complex system, but what I would ask, and I think the, the area of comparative study can be a little bit helpful here, is why is 
this area, like let's say in Denver as an example, the South Platte, uh, that or another, you pick another area of town that was safe in 1979, that is not in 2023. What's changed? Do we have an answer for that? You think? <laughs> you know, you're asking me the you're asking me the right questions, and you're asking me the the hard questions. Next week, we will be issuing our most up to date Denver homeless study, and that will look like you're asking over the last 15, 20 years um, on what the the numbers are are looking like. And I I can tell you from, you know, some embargoed, (laughs) it won't be embargoed for long, but we're going to see some significant increases, at least over the last five years and I think even spanning from the last 10 years. You know, I think elections have consequences. We're a nonpartisan organization, so don't make me go to a place where I'll get fired. But, um, you know, I think it's important to look from, like I said earlier, we just issued studies for crime, housing, and homelessness. And certain trends have gone up and certain trends have gone down since these last local elections. So would urge voters to look very closely at that when they're deciding who the next slate of leaders should be. Right. And I'm not going to ask you to endorse anybody or any particular position, but uh, w- solutions that work historically – and that can be fit into the framework of today's ridiculous uh, culture uh, should not be a partisan issue. Now we know it is. Uh, you know, it, it's it's shocking to see that the idea of law enforcement is a, become a, such a partisan issue. I mean, we had a little of that, I think, in the '60s, but in a different way. Uh, some of those attitudes that were thought to be pretty radical in the 60s just sort of seemed playful, uh, a little like a Happy Days episode compared to what we have now. And so I understand that attitudes change. But, you know, don't you think part of the problem in Colorado is, and it's certainly reflective in California, is drug legalization? So I, I personally think that is not an area where we have done a ton of research, but it's an area that we'd love to do more in what has been the economic cost of legalization of marijuana in our state. I have, you know, personal views that that is a part of the problem, but even my home state of Virginia, they just legalized marijuana as well, which honestly really shocked me. It is, it's not, Colorado is not an outlier. It's becoming um, a trend. And I think that would be a great report for CSI to try to prioritize later this year. There's a larger conversation about, the economic toll the legalization of marijuana is probably playing in this state relative to others. Well, you know, it, it's a dangerous alliance that comes together on these things sometimes. You have people who, one, think that uh, they'd like to be able to get high and they'd like not to have any consequences for that from the legal system. Two, you get you know some very well-meaning libertarians that think the whole war on drugs thing is misplaced and that people ought to be able to do whatever they want to themselves positively or negatively, and you get people who think they're going to make a lot of money by selling drugs because they watched too many Miami Vice episodes when they were kids, and then you get the government who anything that looks profitable from gambling in the lottery to selling drugs uh, seems like a good idea for revenue. I mean, we're we're going to put cannabis uh, shops here in the Grand Junction area here in Colorado, and for those of you listening to other places that have them, I think you can see what a great idea that is. And already there's buzzing out there about, well, we could use that money for you fill in the blank. And, um, you know, once that you establish that revenue stream, 
it's interesting how uh, it becomes, uh, well, what was, I'm trying to remember the the heavy metal group that had the name of one of their albums was What Once Were Vices Are Now Habits. And uh, I think that, you know, it's it's quickly that the vice becomes a habit for government in terms of revenue stream. And then you have this thing and it just happens and they can't let, let loose, they'll never let loose of that money again, even no matter what kind of destruction it does to the cities. Um, they'll just blame it on something else. So we're, we're able to, you, you can ask people. I've seen, you know, homeless people interviewed a lot of them and they'll, they'll tell you that they, one of the things they can come here is because they could get high. And, you know, Denver quasi legalized magic mushrooms and things like that. You know, I mean, why don't we just go back to the old west and, you know, you could, you could buy some Coca Cola, get some Coke in it, uh, get some laudanum with some opium and just everybody will just, you know, uh, we'll just see what happens. I mean, as long as there's a dollar in it, it seems like government is becoming increasingly uh, addicted to it themselves. I mean, if there were rehab for municipality uh, groups, such as city councils, uh, they ought to go because, you know, they're addicted to money from sources that harm their community in some instances. But that's my, I'm sorry, I'm on my soapbox, I guess. <laughs> well, Rick, I understand where you're coming from. If I could, you know, slightly different direction, but, you know, let's, let's think a little bit more about maybe what we can learn or not learn from Denver. And, you know, Common Sense Institute did put out a report last year on homelessness spending in Metro Denver. And it, it was possible to track a lot of the money spent on homelessness. And a lot of that's going to nonprofits, a lot of that's going to administrative, you know, overhead, pretty high, you know, salaries of, of other administrators. But the bigger issue that that report spotlighted was it is much more difficult, this gets back to numbers, accountability, and data, understanding the actual supply of homelessness resources. You know, so you and I were talking earlier in our conversation about what's it going to take to solve the societal problem. And it's important that at both, you know, the local level of Grand Junction and the state, we would tell them policymakers should be should be developing frameworks for understanding what kinds of support are needed. Is it shelter, medical care, mental health treatment, skills training? What's lacking? What's in excess? And where is the need to target resources or reallocate resources? There's just a lack of transparency in many jurisdictions of what resources are being utilized for the homeless, excuse me, for people experiencing homeless, and to start that larger local or statewide conversation about that resource allocation. Yeah, it's a bit of a black box. I mean, we know how many people are homeless, we know how much money, but it is unclear how local and state jurisdictions are, re- are spending that money to serve the homeless. Yeah, I mean, conversations are great. That's always the talk. Well, let's have a conversation about it. Well, we're having a conversation about it right now. And, um, you know, what we need to do is find out exactly what you're saying is, where is the money being spent and did it make a difference? If it didn't, where could we spend money that does? And let's look historically to see why we have this problem. Now, I can tell you some of the problem came about beginning in the 80s where the, the Supreme Court struck down a lot of residence requirements for uh aid through the various social service uh, organizations. Many places used to have 
uh, a residency requirement before you could qualify for uh, aid from like your local social services. You had to be a resident six months or this or that. Supreme Court struck those things down by saying that that somewhat interfered with the right to travel, which is a strange right that once again they found in the Constitution based on some bizarre notions of uh, shadow rights and whatnot. So right away, people are, are able to arrive in a, in a jurisdiction and immediately apply for some kind of benefits. Now, that's even become exacerbated by the fact that now we ele- apparently elect individuals who you know are eager to give out this stuff, uh, I believe, because they think it's a, that they're creating their, a new voting base for themselves. I, I know that's the case, I think, you know, near as I can tell. So... These changes, we need to highlight, you know, what what was working in the past and, you know, try and figure out ways to implement that now and just endlessly talking about it. And I can tell you where the money's going in Denver and other places. I, I don't even have to look at it. I mean, it's just common sense. It's going to administrators, a bureaucratic structure, and an employment of those who will have little or no effect on this besides talking about it and getting paid. And... Uh, the people that are doing the real work are out in the streets probably getting paid nothing from volunteer organizations or whatever the case may be. But uh, governmental solutions with studies and groups and committees and blue ribbon commissions and stuff uh, have solved nothing. And if that was the way human progress went, we would still be trying to figure out how to make things out of metal. So that's, you know, I mean, it's all fine and good to say we want to do that. We want to know where the money's going and what the results are. It's pretty simple. If you have a job and you're selling widgets and you used to sell 50 widgets a day and now you're selling 10 a day, why is that? It's no different to what you ought to be asking your government. I agree. It's, um, it is hard to, um, it's hard to even fathom in Denver in particular, you know, between our report last year showed between 21 and 23, an estimated 1.7 billion, one point, I said B, not M, 1.7 billion will be spent or budgeted to address homelessness in Denver. That is, I think we calculated it, per homeless person spending is $20,000. That is much higher than the state and the city of Denver provides for public education per student. Yeah, look at what great results they have there. <laughs> well, you know, we're running out of time here, and I really appreciate your your time and putting up with me. Um, it's not an easy choice. Um, so I don't know if you're a drinker or not, but you may need one afterwards. But uh, we'll have you on again to talk about this. And I think the Common Sense Institute is doing really good work in there. And so uh, hang on the line for a minute, and the rest of you folks, we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.